Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFARL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is none other than Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of the book, We Need to Talk About Putin. Thanks very much for joining me today, Mark. Oh, it's always a pleasure. All right. Uh, great to have you on the show again. Um, now, well, seeing as this is the last week of 2021, uh, today we're going to look not... Uh, uh, talk about n- not the week ahead in Russia, but uh, about the year ahead in Russia. What will 2022 bring in terms of domestic developments and foreign affairs? Let's start with domestic. Um, the severe tension surrounding Russia's military buildup near Ukraine and its demands for sweeping changes to the post-Soviet security architecture of Eurasia uh, has meant that concerns about uh, Moscow's intentions abroad, particularly vis-a-vis Ukraine, have overshadowed uh, what has really been a very momentous year for Russia at home and not in a good way in the eyes of many observers, or for that matter, in the eyes of uh, many Russians who are experiencing the intensified clampdown on the freedoms of speech, association, assembly, and other liberties. Um, that has occurred at the hands of the state over the past year, really, since uh, Kremlin opponent Alexei Navalny returned to Russia last January. Mark, obviously, it's difficult to predict, but what do you expect uh, in 2022 in terms of domestic developments? Um, More of the same, a further tightening of the screws, or or perhaps a let-up? Yes, I mean, as you say, this is probably one of the the difficult moment, most difficult moments to try and predict the future. So the only real honest answer I could give is I don't know, <laughs> but that would probably make for a rather short and dull podcast. I mean, I think the first thing to be said is actually much of what happens domestically is also in some ways hostage to the foreign policy situation. You know, if the Russians do escalate in Ukraine, then. First of all, that could lock them into a a nasty and bloody conflict, which will have its own specific costs. But also we will see sanctions from the West, probably very, very tough sanctions, which in turn will almost certainly both trigger and legitimize a further backlash within Russia and probably the creation of even more of a security state. Um, so, you know, that is is one kind of particular wild card factor, which in some ways would hijack what I think are the otherwise uh, likely trajectory of, of the next year, which really would be dominated by the, the, the plan for 2024 and the presidential elections. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's quite interesting that you know, if one takes for the moment the Ukraine issue out, so obviously we'll be talking about the foreign affairs dimension in a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, if one looks at that, I mean, it's clear that the September Duma elections were a rather sobering result for the Kremlin and its political technologists. You know, because the one thing that in, in a way the Duma elections do represent is this kind of sort of national focus group. Right. A chance for this very kind of poll obsessed administration to, to savor the public mood. The public mood's not very happy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think really the the plan was precisely to move towards at least giving the appearance of addressing the kind of bread and butter issues, which clearly are what actually motivate and are 
disquieting the Russian population. Because if one looks again, you know, Ukraine has in some ways been this sort of strange sort of distorting factor. But if you take that out, which admittedly is a big thing to take out, you know, Putin's statements since September have been very, very much concentrated on precisely these kind of practical issues. Even if one looks at uh, the statements he was making in his big end of year press conference, you know, a lot of them was it was about things like inflation and regional issues and such like. So I think, you know, it's clear that this was the plan. And I think the idea was that 2022 is when you sort of start the process of trying to convince Russians that life is going to get better, but mainly that you're preparing the groundwork and the administrative structure. 2023 is when you really try and get some kind of short-term immediate results, which give the impression that Russia is moving in the right direction. So that come 2024, the Putin presidency or theoretically someone else, but I think we can really assume Putin, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is an easier sell. You don't actually have to kind of carry through these improvements, but as long as people just get that sense of something moving. So, I mean, I think what we're going to see is shifts within the administration. We've already seen a certain amount of reorganization of local leaders and so forth. I think we're going to see more of that. We're going to see that linked to a further strengthening of Prime Minister Mishustin's central control mechanism now that he's got his kind of situation room and the idea that this will sit atop a whole network of local situation rooms so he can kind of constantly try and manage the country in what is after all a very kind of Soviet model almost. And we're going to see precisely planning for some kind of infrastructure and quality of life improvements. Coupled with that, I mean, part of it is also obviously clearing the ground politically. I wouldn't be surprised if communist leaders Yuganov and or the liberal Democrat stalwart Zhirinovsky go, because it's a good time. You've, that means that gives you a bit of a you know, period to, shall we say, bed down a new leader, given that both of these have been around you know, really since Jurassic times. <laughs> you know, you, you're going to need to build up a, a new figure. Communist Party, we're going to see further moves to to tame or, or even to break it. And we're going to see more playing around with the sort of the new parties. At the same time, as they continue to push out movements like, I mean, we've seen sort of not just Memorial, but League of Voters, OVD, Info, other sort of civil, irritating from the Kremlin's point of view, civil society actors being constrained. So again, I think it's very much this is about this year is is clearing the decks for the push to 2024. That's interesting. And, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Can I just, I mean, just, last, I mean, just, just to go on to, to my own areas of, of, of unhealthy fascination, I mean, within the, the security <laughs> realm, I mean, the interesting thing is we're increasingly seeing a, a, a gerontocracy uh, as more and more of them hit the 70-year point, which prior to this year's con uh, changes to the laws would have meant uh, obligatory retirement. But the point is, although they they are generally look fairly healthy and they're clearly well pampered, you know, figures like like Patrushev at the Security Council, Botnikov at the FSB, you know, they are getting old, um, and and we'll just have to see if there's any sort of enforced uh, rotation, and particularly within the military. Although um, Defence Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov are by these standards spring chickens, merely in their I think 66s. Um, Nonetheless, there's there's been some hints that both Gerasimov might be, who after all, he is the longest serving uh, chief of the general staff 
since the end of the Soviet Union, um, that you know he might be being prepared for a move. Mm-hmm. And likewise, there's been talk of, of Shoigu possibly with a sort of new beefed up presidential plenipotentiary to Siberia, but sort of now more as a sort of a, essentially a viceroy. Um, they probably wouldn't want, because given this is a tough security position, to replace them both at the same time for the risk of, of instability. So we might see one or the other shifted. And again, it'll be interesting to see who replaces, because if, if Gerasimov goes, then, you know, at the moment, the, the front runner is General Surovikin, who's an army soldier who then went and commanded the aerospace forces and also served tours in Syria. Surovikin is... I would suggest at least as hawkish as Gerasimov, and some people suggest even more so. So again, that's going to give us an interesting sign as to whether or not the Kremlin is is banking on a continued antagonistic relationship with the West. I see. That's quite interesting. Uh, and you mentioned Shoigu um, possibly becoming kind of a vice a viceroy in Siberia, and I, I guess he he has laid out that plan to for you know more development of Siberia and making making the cities there into bigger cities. So, you know, maybe that's what he'll be sent to do. Um, and that just... would actually fit quite well with this notion of trying to give the illusion of progress. Because, you know, let's say some point this year they, they appoint Shoigu, um, which is fair enough because the current incumbent, uh, who's actually only just taken over as the plen- presidential plenipotentiary, um, you know, does not seem to be especially wedded to the job. It's just that's the job he was given. Right. Um, the thing is, all these very, very grandiose plans, which frankly probably wouldn't work unless we're talking about massive levels of investment, in the levels of investment that frankly the, the, the Russian state could not afford. But the point is, it would give this sense of motion, of dynamism, of something happening at last, something grand. And, you know, there will be ground broken on projects, which are going to be 10 year projects. But nonetheless, you know, at least at first, it makes it look as if things are happening. Shoigu is very, very good at selling his projects. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, Siberia is an area in which actually United Russia often has has trouble gaining traction. Um, so, you know, I think this, this is exactly the way it's going to be. I think it, it's very much going to be about making a few real gains, but above all the appearance that don't worry Glorious times are just over the horizon. Yeah, it's quite interesting, uh, including the idea, I guess, that, I mean, if you're focusing on Siberia, that's sort of saying, well, you know, how much do we need the West? So that's another kind of PR aspect of it, maybe. Um, I just noted your, I'm not trying to, you know, put words into your mouth or anything, but uh, the, you know, you mentioned um, these cases against Memorial, which, those might wrap up this week. Um, there are hearings on both kind of branches of Memorial uh, tomorrow and the next day. So uh, it's possible that they could have rulings to shut Memorial, um, you know, by the by the new year. Um, and, you, you know, you mentioned uh, kind of moving towards more more efforts by the Kremlin to to. Uh, uh, take on, I guess, take on the the uh, systemic opposition, the LDPR and and the communists, and also to work and develop, with, you know, the other parties. So maybe that's a sign of kind of a shift. Well, we're almost done, you know, with the uh, with the real opposition and 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 sort of civil society, and now we're going to turn, 
to fine tuning uh, more of the systemic. But that's just kind of kind of thoughts on my part. Um, so, but let's go on um, to foreign policy now. Now you mentioned that what happens domestically is going to depend quite a bit on what happens uh, abroad, uh, and including, of course, uh, you know, in and around Ukraine. Uh, I mentioned the tensions in the introduction. I would say that with both sides talking about talks um, in in January, and now it appears that Lavrov has just said that it looks like the talks with the U.S. will take place right after the Russian holidays, which would be January 10th or 11th or so. Um, and then possibly the NATO-Russia talks. I, I don't think an agreement for that is finalized, but that those would start soon after that, um, possibly. So, you know, uh, you know, no, 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 no specific dates have been set, but it seems like the level of alarm over the prospect of a big new Russian offensive against Ukraine has receded a little bit, at least just for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but it also seems, to me at least, that any talks about what Russia calls its proposals, uh, this, these are chiefly its calls for a binding promise that NATO will not expand any further eastward, uh, including into Ukraine, and that Western countries refrain, uh, if I have this right, from deploying weapons or conducting military activity with any country near Russia that was not a NATO member in 1997, and that's all of Eastern Europe. Um, that, the, that these talks could run into problems almost immediately, it seems to me. Uh, Western officials, at least informally, have said that those two demands are unacceptable because they'd give Russia a veto over several countries' foreign policy, security choices. Um, but the Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman pointedly said over the weekend that those are Moscow's main demands, and they must be, you know, they must be heard and addressed. Uh, and Putin once again suggested that if the West does not accept Russia's proposals, it could respond militarily. Um, I mean, he didn't say so in so many words, but that's been clear, you know, in what he and others have been saying for a couple of weeks. Uh, Mark, again, hard to predict, but how do you see these tensions playing out in 2022? And beyond the issues revolving around Ukraine and NATO, is there anything else uh, you'll be watching most closely in terms of Russian foreign policy? Yes, it's quite interesting the extent to which, whereas domestic policy is geared for a certain degree of long-termness, foreign policy very much looks like it's an old man in a bit of a hurry trying to make some gains, have some kind of triumph to, to his name. I mean, on Ukraine, it's, it's, it's quite striking the way that the Russians pivoted from what was originally precisely a Ukraine-specific uh, issue, that this was about, as they saw it, Minsk II, and that the Ukrainians needed to be applying it more vigorously and applying it in, obviously, the interpretation that, that Moscow had. Mm -hmm to turning it to actually also being something about the whole European security architecture. Now, ironically, in some ways, that is actually a relief because it's a lot harder to really see Russia thinking in order to try and improve our situation with the sort of the, the wider NATO concerns, we will do something to Ukraine. I mean, mm -hmm. the, 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 these are two separate issues. And I mean, the very way that the Russians are pushing so hard for quick results, it's a little bit like, to be perfectly honest, you know, you know that if the double glazing salesman is telling you that this is a deal he can only hold open for that day and you've got to sign right now, you know that you're basically being conned. 
And you also know that actually that salesman will still be there tomorrow. He's not going to turn away your business. Um, you know, uh, okay, there, there is a limit to how far one can use double glazing salespeople as um, ex explanatory metaphors for Russian foreign policy. But I do think we are at the point still of what you might think of as very, very aggressive haggling. The very reason why they're pushing is precisely because they want to talk. Now, yes, it's a complete non-starter the idea that, that, that Russia should be allowed to have these kinds of, of vetoes and, and in effect exactly a, a sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. But the point is the very fact that they want to have these discussions, I think, is encouraging. And it very much therefore becomes how the West plays it. My, my concern is because we know that Russia will go in as is its won't, starting with a lengthy recitation of all the ways in which it feels it has been hard done by some of which have some legitimacy, many of which have absolutely none at all. And if the West gets bogged down in, you might say, trying to, to litigate the individual clauses, mm -hmm. then I think the trouble is the Russians may well feel that actually this is not going to go anywhere and they need to in some ways up the ante. And although I really don't think a, a mass invasion of Ukraine is at all a likely outcome, it is not impossible. And I think instead we would see something something kinetic but 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 more limited um you know in in, in ukraine mm. um so in some ways and and in i, I it's, it's something i've been kind of suggesting is really we, we should also think of this as in part you know, kind of russian therapy um you know it, it is the, the the west needs needs to allow the russians to, to talk themselves out firstly just as to drag on the talks process the longer it goes, the harder actually it will be for the Russians, I would suggest, to maintain these forces and also to be able to launch an attack. Mm -hmm. But also genuinely to try and find some ways in which actually you know, are there any forms that can make the Russians feel that they have more security or at least that they are being treated seriously. Because a lot of this is frankly about the sort of the, the neuroses and psychoses of a relative handful of old men, veterans of that 30-year-old this Christmas collapse of the Soviet Union um, without actually impinging on the, the structures of, of the modern order. So, I mean, I, I think that there is some hope, but we've got to realise that while military action is by no means Putin's plan A, it's still there as a plan B or plan C. And I think that he's now in a position where he, he has to have something, even if it's just that we create some new structure, you know, a, a new process, mm -hmm. a new, you know, a, arrangement that makes him feel and be able to present himself as having forced something on the West, because that's always a really important thing for him, clearly. Um, if he feels he's not getting any of that, then I think he will feel that he has to step up in some way. Otherwise, he looks weak and he looks like a failure. And again, it does seem to be, and I know we're moving back into pop, pop psychology here, but you know that does seem to be for him one of these, one of these night terrors. Of, of being seen as weak. And again, we can play the parallel with 30 years ago and Gorbachev. You know, very much he clearly sees his big reason for scorn of Gorbachev is that Gorbachev is weak right. and he's not going to be that kind of weak. Right, and, and on exactly the same issues, essentially. You know, uh, yeah, NATO exactly. Expansion. Um, I guess I'd you know, I like to kind of say it, it just seems difficult to imagine, you know, with with Russia pressing so hard on specifically these elements or these demands that that seem uh, unacceptable uh, to the West. You know, 
Ukraine can't join NATO, and it, this has to be a formal, um, uh, a formal, you know, re- legally binding decision. Um, and also the the weapons and, and military activity um, issue. It just seems like such a such a hard thing to kind of thread the needle, I guess, and come to some agreement that could be acceptable for for both sides. So I kind of worry about that. And another factor is, you know, as you mentioned, in in both the domestic and foreign uh, policy um, uh, parts, uh, I guess the the people surround Putin and the people surrounding him. I mean, Patrushev and uh, uh, you know, no spring chickens, as you said. So, you know, is that is that a factor? Are there actual opinions uh, and and even feelings kind of a factor in in that's going to make it even harder to to kind of uh, resolve this? And this is the interesting thing about foreign policy is that we talk about national interests and all this kind of thing. Foreign policy is almost invariably very, very heavily, disproportionately heavily influenced by the relative handful of people at the top of the, the top of the system. You know, rather than you know, economic policy is it's 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 big and no one really understands it. Foreign policy is 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 people can can feel that they're actually in charge of it and so forth. And you know, Putin can declare war. Putin can't, I don't know, declare an end to inflation. So yes, I think that that matters. And again, this this is for me the really concerning thing is that we really don't know a lot of the things that we would really want to know about you know what is Putin's calculus, what is his appetite for risk. You know, on the whole, in the past, he'd been quite risk averse. You know, is it that he feels right. this is his last throw of the dice and therefore it's worth gambling? Um, what is Putin being told? You know, we, we assume, and I think it's fair to say, we assume Putin is a rational actor. And I, I think he is. But what we don't know for sure is what his briefings are. You know, are people coming as, for example, you know, it's a parallel I sometimes go back to is the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Well, one of the key problems was precisely that uh, his de- Brezhnev's defense minister, Dmitry Ustinov, was not a military man, was a drinking buddy of cronies, uh, of, of Brezhnev's, mm-hmm. and did not pass on the very, very clear warnings from his own general staff who were saying, look, this is really not a war we want to get into, and instead was willing to airily reassure Brezhnev that six months and everything was going to be over. Now, I don't see Shoigu as being the same kind of figure, mm-hmm. but precisely it may well be that the internal defamations, shall we say, of, of, of the briefing process mean that, in fact, people like, like Putin are being told that absolutely the West has plans to place missiles in Kharkiv, like that was one of the things that Putin at one point sort of raised as, as a specter, right. um, or indeed that, in fact, the most, most Ukrainians are desperate for Russia to come and liberate them from the neo-fascists of Kiev. You know, we don't know what, which of this nonsense is propaganda and which of this is believed. That is, for me, the big concern, because exactly, it's about a relative handful of people who ultimately will make a decision with, in this case, almost no practical political checks and balances. And so I guess one way of putting it would be, you know, even if Putin is acting rationally, you know, but will he act on irrational advice and information? So I guess I hope we find out something next year about that. uh, And I hope the kind of answer is positive, uh, if that's uh, uh, one way to put it. Um, Okay, Mark, uh, very fascinating uh, analysis. Uh, We're running out of time. We'll have to wrap it up. And thanks very much for joining me. Always a pleasure. 
All right. Great to have you on the podcast. I'll be back again um, next Monday. Uh, Please keep an eye out on Friday for my Week in Russia newsletter, the New Year's Eve edition. Thanks for listening.